0: About 5 o'clock in the morning on Thanksgiving Day, my family got in the car, kids in the pajamas, and we started driving to Spokane to spend some time with Cory's side of the family. That's a really boring drive. Sorry if I offend you Eastern Washington people, but after Vantage, it's pretty much you say goodbye to those horse sculptures, and then it's like... And the kids are starting to wake up, and so we were prepared, and we brought The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis on audio and listened to it for, I guess, the hundredth time as our family has done of course, in that story, you've got the four Pavensi children who are from 20th century London, and they go through a magical wardrobe where they end up in the land of Narnia. And when they get to Narnia, they find that the whole land is under a curse from an evil witch, and it is always winter, but never, never Christmas. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oppression covers the citizens of Narnia like snow covers the land. And yet, there are some, a remnant you might call them, who long for an advent, which means coming. And the advent that they're longing for is the coming of Aslan, the creator and savior of that land. They hope for a Christmas of sorts, not for the sentimentality of what Christmas means on the periphery, like good food and coziness by the fire, which I love. And not just for cheaply made gifts that are quickly forgotten. They long for an advent or the coming of their Lord and Savior because only he can break winter's curse and only he can bring the springtime of new life. Aslan's coming in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is more than just a ceremony. It means actual change for the people, for the citizens of Narnia. Change for the good of those who trust in him. And repent of their evil ways and change for the judgment of the evil who refuse to give up their power when the true king comes back. Lewis gets it, I think. And thus far in our Advent series, we've been looking at the reasons that Jesus came. What is it that we're hoping for this Advent? The first week of Advent, we saw how Jesus came or was born to bring justice to a corrupt and broken world. And what we came to find is that in this in-between time of his birth and his second coming, we will have justice only when we submit ourselves to Jesus in heart, soul, mind, and strength. On the second week of Advent, we saw that the root of injustice in the world is the sin that is in my heart. And sorry, it's in your heart too. It's a human problem. And so what we saw the second week of Advent is that Jesus was born to save us from our sins. The Bible uses the language of Exodus, where God delivered his people from bondage, slavery, to the Egyptians. In a similar way, Jesus offers deliverance uh, from slavery to sin, both forgiveness of the consequences of sin... And the promise of deliverance from the grip of sin. its one thing we we talked about that week, to be forgiven, but I'm so screwed up, I keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And so part of the promise of Jesus is to forgive, but also to give an opportunity of new life, of a changed life, of a life worth living for. You see, Jesus coming to save us from our sins is a positive thing, a vision for a new life worth living for. And this week, on the third Sunday of Advent, we're going to discover, I hope, uh, at least I have, that Jesus was born to gather a family. The Bible begins with the book of Genesis. Literally, Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on goes the litany, the poem of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And at the end of that awesome, incredible poem, Jesus created... Well, yeah, theologically, yes, but God creates uh, the Ish and the Isha, the man and the woman. In his image, he creates the man and the woman. He creates a family, not a family of two, but a family of three, Yahweh and Adam and Eve. It is the context for relationship, family, the context for sharing oversight of the world, The context, the very way that we can know one another and are known by one another to be human is to be in relationship with other people. So hear me, when I say family in this message, I'm not talking about your mom and dad and if you have any kids or your siblings. I'm talking about human relationships, family, being known and knowing others in community. In the beginning, God created a family that was to be in loving relationship with him and to participate with him in his work. But things quickly went sour when Adam and Eve rebelled. And for thousands of years, humans lived in a cycle of sin, rebellion, forgiveness, grace. Sin, rebellion, forgiveness, and grace. Until finally, in Genesis 12, God reveals his plan to rescue creation. And at the center of his plan is a... Family, Abram, Sarai, and their future descendants. This family would be more than biological. God chose this family of Abraham to be blessed so that they could be a blessing to all the world, all the nations. The intent was for Abram's family and their many descendants to share their wisdom and blessing and love and law of God with the world. And that way wayward children, all the nations, would come to be part of the family of God. As the story goes, Abraham's family becomes the people of Israel, and the people of Israel fall into the repeated cycles of idolatry, and instead of sharing Yahweh and his blessing with the world, they begin to worship false gods, and unfortunately, well, no, I will say this, simply a fact, you become like that which you worship so when israel began to stop worshiping yahweh alone and began worshiping the gods the false gods of the world the result was brokenness and injustice and immorality and violence and corruption and ultimately exile from the land of god god's family was in trouble it was broken it was fractured into factions each with their own agendas, and each with their own interests. And today, we live in a world of broken families. I'm not just talking about biological families, although there's lots of those too. I'm talking about a breakdown in how we relate to one another. I'm talking about the tendency to be so insecure in who we are that we form groups and then demonize people in other groups. I'm talking about a vacuum of vision for what life together can look like. And there to fill that vacuum for wayward people who don't have a place to belong are, you know, I'm using extreme hyperbole, groups like ISIS. I'll fill that void. I'll give you a vision for something important in your life. Uh, this is the, the sociology of a street gang. It's a place to belong. It's why we form clubs. It's why we have cliques. We all long to belong. Places where we can contribute. Even though um, <clears throat> those of us who are living in, quote-unquote, healthy families, I've still not really figured out what that means, but uh, w- even those of us who think our families are pretty okay, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't we all struggle at times with feelings of isolation? Like we don't quite fit like everybody else fits? Like we don't belong or have something to contribute to the group? Like, there's more to this life together that preachers always talk about, that the Bible always talks about, than I'm currently experiencing. The world is full of orphans, both literally and figuratively. And Jesus came to gather us up as a family, to smash the social barriers that we often put up to protect us because of our insecurity. He came to embrace those of you who feel unworthy. He came for nothing short of new creation. How do I know? Well, because one of his apostles, Matthew, presents his whole good news, his whole gospel, in a way that's framed in new creation language. Stand with me, will you? And I'll read it to you. Not the whole gospel, don't worry. (laughs) We'd be here all night. Uh, But just the first six verses of Matthew the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David the king. Lord, help us to make sense of this list <laughs> and to see what it is that Matthew, your servant, is trying to tell us about Jesus, about you. Amen. Maybe seated. <laughs> now, on the surface, this seems just like a list of names and strange names at that. But that's because we didn't read it in Greek. In Greek, the first sentence makes much more sense. It says this: Beblas Geneseos, Jesu Christu, huyu dawid, huyu Abraham." Now, doesn't that make a lot more sense? Yeah. It says this, the book of New Genesis brought into being by Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Let me read that again, literally translated. The book of New Genesis brought into being by Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew starts his account with the same title and sentence as Genesis, the book of beginnings. He is tipping his hand, if he was playing poker, I don't know why I say that, but anyway, he's tipping his hand that Jesus is deeply connected with the very beginning of creation, and yet, because of his advent, something new has happened. In our culture, new things sell. Take a dish soap, joy. I don't know how old joy is, is it 50 years old? I don't know, it's just glycerin, right? It's some stuff, but you put some lavender in that this year, because they had lemon scent before, you put lavender, and it's new and improved. You throw in something about making your skin look younger, you've got our narcissistic culture, you've got a seller right there. New and improved. We tend to think, and and you may not even agree this if you were to think about it, but our, our culture, our ethos, tends to think that with technology, life is getting better and better, and so we love the new and improved. It must be better than the old stuff, and it costs more. In the culture of first-century Palestine, new things, new people, new ideas were viewed with great suspicion. It was to ancient things that people looked for wisdom and authority. So Matthew's gospel opens by rooting Jesus firmly in the line of God's people, especially Abraham, the father of the covenant, and David, the great king from which the Messiah was prophesied to come. But more than rooting Jesus firmly in the people of God, genealogies were especially important for showing that someone was qualified to be a king or a priest. In today's world, when you apply for a job, you typically give them a resume and some letters of recommendation. The resume generally says, this is my job experience, my education, maybe some community service. It basically tells the employer that you are qualified, competent to do the job. Letters of recommendation come in and say, uh, uh, vouch for your character. If you were applying for the job of Messiah in the first century, you would list your genealogy. No one would care what you said about yourself in the first century. They'd want to know where you came from. And to be a Messiah in the Jewish tradition, you'd have to come from David's line. And you'd have to have some big names in your history. Abraham's a really good one, like Jesus has. You certainly wouldn't want to list any names in your genealogy that could tarnish your reputation, which is why this genealogy is so particularly weird. In the first six verses, we see at least four names that don't fit in a typical genealogy Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And these names are strange in a genealogy, especially one that is there to qualify Jesus as being Messiah. It's weird for a few reasons. First of all, They're women. And women weren't in genealogies, especially genealogies for priests or kings or messiahs. Um, It just wasn't as important of which, you you don't trace the line back through the women's uh, line. The second weird thing is that these aren't just women, they're Gentiles. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was from Jericho. Ruth was a Moabitess. The Moabites are the offspring of Lot and his own daughters. They were cursed of God, supposedly, never to be part of the people of God. And yet, Ruth becomes a faithful Israelite. And Bathsheba, who was probably a Jewish woman, but she married Uriah, who was a Hittite, a non-Jewish guy. She basically, you know, sold out and and married a a non-Jewish person. So, women and Gentile, or having Gentile associations. And the third thing is that uh, they had questionable character. Tamar acted immorally with her father-in-law Judah. Rahab was a prostitute, but also known for her faith in helping the Israelite spies. Ruth was a great woman of faith, but how shall I say, relationally aggressive with Boaz, her future husband. Um, Bathsheba was married when she consorted with King David. So not a stellar genealogy if you're trying to impress people about your, um, your road to the Messiahship. But there's more than just the questionable nature of adding these women to the genealogy. You see, by adding these particular women, Matthew is also challenging a lie. And that lie is that if you are connected to David or connected to Judah, you're somehow inherently better than anyone else. The fact is that Tamar was married to Judah's son. And when that son died, it was Judah's responsibility to take care for her. And he did not do that. And so in that story of Judah and Tamar, Judah is the villain. The man is the villain. And King David, the so-called man after God's own heart, basically commanded Bathsheba, a married woman, uh, to be with him. And then when she was, she had her, he had her husband killed, murdered. Now, why would Matthew put these names in Jesus' uh, Jesus's lineage if the prevailing culture would have looked down on doing so? Because these are just the kind of people that Jesus saves. These are just the kind of people that are invited into God's kingdom. God works in and through imperfect, broken people Because that's the only kind of people there are. That's the only kind of people I'm looking at and is talking to you right now. Imperfect and broken people. The priests and rulers during Jesus' day focused primarily on purity, on keeping the law in and of themselves. That's not a bad idea. Your life is going to go better if you can, uh, you know, keep your eyes on the road and and, and live a straight and narrow life, okay? You're just gonna, you're gonna be better off. But they emphasize purity so much that what they were in effect teaching people is that God would only accept them if they were pure to a certain standard. And Matthew begins his presentation of Jesus in this new Genesis because Jesus is a new Adam. He is making a new reality, a new creation. And he actually redeems his, the past of the people in his genealogy. You see, usually genealogies were there to support um, the qualifications of a person. So your genealogy would be le- used to look at, oh, okay, uh, your Brent's got so-and-so, he's got David in his line, he's got Abraham in his line, he's got Judah in his line. He's the right guy for Messiah, right? That's usually how genealogies work. They support you. But so great is this king that he actually supports his genealogy. He actually redeems the past. These people are somebody because he is everybody. So let me sum up so far, especially if you cohort kids are following along. Let me sum up. Jesus was born to gather a family. He's creating a new people. And that is very good news for those of us who feel unworthy or on the outside looking in, disqualified for something we've done in the past. Now, how does one actually access this family? Is it a matter of, yay, Jesus, everybody's in? What we saw last week is the counterbalance to that. We saw that the whole human race is, what I just said, broken, because we all have a sin problem. We are all seeking our own way. Jesus was born, like we saw last week, to save us from our sins. So it's not so much a matter of everybody's in by default. It's more like nobody is out who wants to be in. Nobody is out who wants to be in this family. The key to salvation is being part of this family uh, is, is about our response to Jesus. It's about how we respond to him. And what's surprising all throughout scripture, and I don't know about you, but in my experience in life, Is that it's surprising to me the types of people who respond positively to Jesus. Some of the most surprising people are like, that person would never come to Christ. I wouldn't have thought I'd be where I am um, 25 years ago. And it's surprising in Scripture the type of people who come to Christ. And it's surprising in Scripture the people who don't come to Christ. Take the story of the Magi, for example. Our scripture reading uh, earlier in the service read that whole Magi story from Matthew chapter two. Magi were pagans versed in the arts of magic, knowledge of history and lore, interpreting dreams and reading the stars. To the Israelites, this was a major taboo and was linked with pagan idolatry. Magi are negatively mentioned a couple times in the book of Acts, but most people in Matthew's audience would have immediately thought of the Magi In Daniel, in the story of Daniel, it's the Magi, these astronomers and um, uh, wise men, who try and frame Daniel for praying to his God and have him thrown in the lion's den. They're ticked off because Yahweh has allowed Daniel to interpret dreams like they never could. Magi to the Jews of Jesus' day might appear as far from God as someone to a Christian today who practices Wicca or reads palms or as a fortune-teller. All this to say that Magi would be some of the least likely people you would think would come and worship the Savior of Israel. But there they were, journeying over deserts and mountains and rivers and valleys, all to pay homage to Jesus. And why? Why did they make this journey? Because Their craft of studying the stars told them something. They saw something special. A sign that intrigued them so much that they embarked on a perilous journey of great length with danger from the elements and danger from bandits all to come and see the potential of a newborn king. The magi are doing all of this based on information they gleaned from the stars. They're willing to leave their homes, their family travel at great personal cost and risk, to see if perhaps they read the stars correctly at all. Contrast now the magi who do all of this on great faith. Contrast them with King Herod and his court. King Herod was literally the king of the Jews when Jesus was born. He's the one with access to the traditions and the scriptures of God. He's the one who has priests in his own court, scribes at his disposal for advice the one who had religious experts in his court, who told the Magi that, hey, the prophet said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. On the surface, if if you didn't know the story and you were to say which one of those two groups are more likely to go see the newborn king of Israel, I would assume that it would be Herod and his court, all of these people who know the Bible really, really well, as opposed to dudes who don't know the Bible super well and saw some star. fact is that we see that none of those external things matter in the end. In the end, what matters in the story is how they respond to Jesus. And how do they respond? Well, Herod finds out that there's possibly a new king born in his land. And he's so afraid of losing his power and position as a steward of the kingdom. He's not even the rightful king that he decides to have all the babies who could possibly be of the right age murdered. He knew full well, and you gotta give him credit for this, that to worship the Son of God meant that he would not be king anymore. And I'll just say it out there right now, that part of worshiping Jesus is not cozy feel-good Christmas trees and carols. It means dying to my kingdom, dying to my grip on the control of my life, and submitting myself to a different king. That's what it means to worship a king. It's not like, hey, we can be kings together, and I'll do the stuff that's cool that you like and say, and then, you know, this other stuff, I'll just do my own thing. Not quite how it works in the presence of a king. Not a democracy, this whole thing with God. The Magi, on the other hand, find out about the possibility of a messianic king, and they alter their lives in order to come and worship him. They bring gifts of great expense. And at the beginning of the story, we might be tempted to call the Magi wise men because of all of their learning and because they followed the star. But what Matthew wants us to see is that in the end, these Magi are wise men because they have come and found Jesus and worshiped him. Jesus was born to gather a family. A family with boundaries beyond genetics, and beyond race. A family big enough to include every tongue and every tribe and every, uh, every nation. A family with a short memory of past sins and a family where you can belong. And at the center of this family is Jesus. He's the common denominator. Faithful, repentant response to Jesus is what it takes to make us a family. And the way I see it, Jesus born to gather a family involves good news in 3 different areas. First, the story gives us the good news of conviction. I know it always doesn't always feel good to be convicted or challenged in the way that we're living, but I think it's always better to live in reality than in a delusion. It's always better to live in truth than believing in a lie. And the reality is that this story invites me, invites you to ask ourselves, am I responding faithfully to Jesus? And maybe you find yourself identifying with the Magi. You came to worship today still unsure about this Jesus character. Yet something, or someone, I would say, drew you here. You may not know much about the Bible. You may not know much about church. But you know the tug on your heart to follow the God who loves you and died to rescue you. How will you respond to that? Would you say yes to Jesus, even if you don't know fully what that means? I don't know fully what that means. I'm finding out more and more. Would you join me in the journey? Maybe you're more like the people in Herod's court. It's probably where I identify a little bit more. You come regularly to worship with the church. You hear sermons or give them on God's word every week. You might even read the Bible at home. But when it comes to following Jesus, when it costs, you're not quite so sure. You're not quite ready to give up that addiction or that guilty pleasure. You know about Jesus, but you haven't quite made him Lord of everything yet. And this is just as much for me as it is for you. The good news of the story is that submission to Jesus isn't like a damper on life. It is an avenue to full and abundant life. Second, the story gives us the good news of forgiveness. When we respond faithfully to Jesus, trusting him to forgive our sins, and trusting that his way of life is worth living, we find that we're part of his family. We are included in the family of God. The things you have done and the things you have said, the things that you feel disqualify you from being close to Jesus cannot disqualify you. They didn't disqualify the Magi who were pagans or Paul who persecuted the church or Peter who denied Jesus three times or Mary Magdalene who was a notorious sinner or Zacchaeus who was a thieving tax collector or Thomas who had his doubts. Responding in faith to Jesus means allowing him to wipe away your guilt and wipe away your shame completely. Amen? It's okay. And finally, the story gives us good news of hope for broken people in our lives. The coworker who at this point in your life and your, your working relationship, whose very voice gives you chills up your spine. Right? <laughs> They're not too far for Jesus to redeem. The brother or sister living a wayward lifestyle is not too far gone for Jesus to rescue. The friend at your school cohort kids you don't get along with. Jesus was born to gather them in two. He died for them, too. He wants them in his family, too. The son or daughter who doesn't seem to want anything to do with Jesus is not outside of the pull of the tractor beam of the Holy Spirit. Not even Obi-Wan can shut that tractor beam down. Can I get an amen? All right. The broken family dynamics highlighted around the holiday season can be submitted to prayer to the one who was born to gather a family. So, let us follow him faithfully. Let us be an outpost of hospitality to our community. Let the church be the physical expression of God, his loving family to our friends and to our neighbors and to our community. Ever pointing to Jesus, who makes us one. Lord, hear our prayer for those parts of our lives that we feel on the outside looking in disqualified and shamed help us to receive your forgiveness and new life lord for those areas of our lives that we hide and are fearful of submitting to you because it feels like dying a small death help us to have the courage to die that small death to walk through that li- that that threshold into wide-open spaces of new life and freedom. And Lord, help us to have eyes, hearts, and attitudes that are ever looking out for others. To be includers. To be reflections of truth, beauty, and goodness. Not compromising your law or your word, but doing so with tact and graciousness so that no one could say in us that they met a jerk, that we wouldn't be stumbling blocks from people loving you, Lord. And we pray all these things to you because we need a miracle for that to happen in us, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you were born for this. Thank you that you live for this.